Hello, everyone, and welcome to From Oil to Soil, The Shift with Isadora Spearwoman. Here at From Oil to Soil, we are reclaiming the discussion by reframing the discussion. For more information, visit www.fromoiltosoil.org. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 5 of From Oil to Soil, The Shift. I'm your host, Isadora Spearwoman, and today we have Mick McAvoy joining us. Mick has had a 20-year career in horticulture, ecology, and agriculture, beginning in Ireland and the UK. His career has taken him all over the world. Mick put his roots down in the soil of Plum Village after Thich Nhat Hanh and his community visited Ireland in 2012. Mick has been the manager of the Plum Village Happy Farm since 2016. As well as managing the Happy Farm project, Mick is helping to oversee a rewilding project on the lands of Upper Hamlet, Plum Village, along with his community there. You can find out more about him by visiting thehappyfarm.org. The solution that we're focused on today is conservation agriculture. And conservation agriculture is very important because it protects soil, avoids emissions, and sequesters carbon using crop rotation, soil cover, and minimal to no tilling in the production of annual crops. What I want is it for it to be scalable and for it to be when I go into a supermarket, whether that's in France or Australia or US, that the majority of the food that's under that roof or in that mall is cultivated in a way that's good for the earth, that's good for the people who dwell on the earth, and that's good for the rest of the ecology that shares the earth. And it's not just about profit, it's not a, a form of extractive agriculture. Well, welcome to our podcast. We are so happy to have you here with us. And to get started, we would love for you to just, in your own words, describe your passion, your mission, and the work you do in the world. I had a passion for, for the natural world since I was a small, uh, small boy, a small child, and I grew up in Ireland in the north of Ireland and just on the edge of town in suburbia. I think I really felt at home in the natural world when I used to go out with my mother and father for little walks. And sadly, Ireland has doesn't have so much of its native forest left anymore, but that's being uh, tackled where we're replanting. But beautiful hedgerows, diverse native hedgerows full of wildflowers. And I think that was the first time I realized that I had this intimate connection with the, the natural world. There was just something intrinsic in me. And my mother was a gardener. We had a small suburban garden. And I really enjoyed the little oasis that that was providing in the edge of suburbia. In that garden, there was a, always just a few, not very many, food, food crops. Things like snap peas and, and salads and strawberries. So I mentioned my parents because I, I changed my my sort of career path, maybe in my 20s. And 
yeah, I don't think it, it was intentionally, you know, my parents wanted me to, to be a professional and to, to be able to fend for myself financially in the, the world. I always knew I wanted to, to engage in something with the natural world, but there wasn't, yeah, wasn't so many opportunities in terms of vocational work as well, because I wanted to be outdoors. I didn't want to be in the lab or yeah, in the office uh, in terms of policy or lobbying. I wanted to be out there and amongst the, the wild and amongst the, the forest. And eventually I, I was very fortunate to, to work with a, one amazing charity that covers the whole of the United Kingdom, including Northern Ireland, and they're called the National Trust. So we did a three-year apprenticeship with them. And it was mainly in horticulture, but we also had amazing native woodlands. And right on our doorstep, we also had a um, beautiful a tidal estuary, a sort of we call it a sea lock. Um, but it was this very human connection with food and the fact that we all eat. There's a lovely saying, if you eat, you're in. So we're all engaged in, in what we eat. And I went back to, to food in my, my sort of vocation and connecting people with growing foods on a sort of a mission to connect people with where their food comes from, how it's grown, who grows it, what time of year, you know, the seasonality of, of the crops that are available. And to demystify the, the process and to, to bring this, to reinstate the sort of the synergy that is like a really, for me, it's a real noble synergy between the farmer and the, and the family or the individual who sits and, and eats. So it's, yeah, it's a, such an intrinsic web and very diverse web globally. And this, this realm of conservation agriculture is very much part of, of my mission and my passion. I live in France and I, I live in uh, interesting places where I met Eamon, a place called Plum Village. And it's often known as the United Nations of Mindfulness. So we're a, a mindfulness practice center, uh, a Zen monastery. So we have uh, Buddhist monks and nuns. And my, my role is to, to care for and manage what we call the happy farm. So it's a regenerative agricultural project where we weave in the, the sort of contemplative practices of, of mindfulness and the, the beauties and challenges of community life as well. And also be aware and care for the, the surrounding ecology that we share. The, the land with. Yeah, but thank you for sharing everything. Um, I think let's let's dive into the solution. And you know, it's it's a big one: conservation agriculture. How drawdown sort of encapsulates it is in three different areas. So it's you know, minimizing soil disturbance, maintaining soil cover, and managing crop rotation. So maybe you just want to give the listeners an overview of, like, what is conservation agriculture? Why is it important? What are, you know, the practices that it uses? And maybe even to start, I guess, on the other side, what is the opposite of conservation agriculture and you know where is that that line of how we how we grow food and how we use lands in our world so just go anywhere i'm just like i just want to listen to you so <laughs> just go <laughs> for me what we do here in, in the happy farm of plum village it's 
yeah, it is conservation agriculture. It's regenerative agriculture. And what we try to do is put the soil first. So mm. there's a nice mantra I like to, to feed the soil, not the plants. Mm. So we're very much on a human scale. We've got some small machinery, but this is scaling up all over the world now. And Drawdown has great resources to talk about the, the area of land that's continuing to, to end up in, in conservation agriculture, cultivation, if you will. Um, and it really is, is this idea of minimizing the disturbance of the soil because what you've seen in the US during the Dust Bowl, you know, the soil, soil in nature has never left uh, unprotected in terms of having a, a plant cover. So we use cover crops or green manures in this conservation agriculture. But when you see in nature when there's a landslide or there's an earthquake or any soil disturbance, slowly within a period of weeks, there's a succession of plant life will come in and recolonize that bare soil and grow and stabilize and put down roots and there'll be a succession of plants that'll end up if it's you know, without human intervention, can end up in a, a forest. And also for, you know, now I'm living in France and we're surrounded by, it's a beautiful climate. So we have a lot of vineyards, a lot of like, it's probably the Bordeaux, the Bergerac area. So the world famous wine. Um, but also wheat, it's a huge amount of, of wheat. And the French love to eat bread. Mm. And I just think of all the, the bread that I've eaten. Again, it wasn't organic growing up. So that system of tillage, which is, you know, I see it here at this time of year. It's pretty grim because the fields are left open, broken soil, broken earth. And we have heavy rain, like most places will have in the Northern Hemisphere in winters. Uh, so you can literally see the, the soil being washed off the field sometimes across the, the roads. And that's a system that's it's not sustainable and hopefully it's, it's not going to continue because we can't continue that way. So what we, we try to do with the conservation agriculture is to, to care for the soil first mm. and not having to then intervene with huge amounts of artificial fertilizers and chemicals so that the, we're rebalancing that that whole sort of dynamic that feeding the soil will, uh, you put a healthy plant in the soil at the start of the season, whether that's a grain of wheat that grows into a plant, whether that's an apple tree, whether that's a, a lettuce or a tomato, that's the plants will be nourished by the healthiness of the soil, the vitality of the soil. Mm. So we, we do that by, by adding organic matter all the, all the time, you know, every, every winter, every fall, we, we add, you know, here we, for example, in the community, we make our own compost, but it's only a small amount, even though we have a lot, it's, it's not enough to cover all our beds. We, we cultivate no-till or minimal till. So we cultivate our, our soil and our beds that way. So we basically aren't disturbing that network, that whole, it's a whole community. And it's, if you think of it, people talk, see it sometimes in the, the fishing industry where, we trawl, we use that word at least in, in Europe, basically scraping the seabed to, to bring up maybe a shellfish or to scoop up all the, the other fish life. Mm. Essentially, that's what tilling is doing. It's, it's upending and inverting the soil structure, which takes millennia to, to come together. Um, and it's full of life. It's, it's a community. It's so vibrant, mm. full of microorganisms and bacteria and invertebrates and, um, yeah, of course, the earthworms. So the tilling, it's really destructive and 
on a small scale in your back garden, you can do no-till. You can just build up your soil level while you put down some cardboard over your grass, or if you're growing on asphalt or on concrete, you can have a raised bed. And every year you can just layer up and layer up. So your the plant life that you harvest is going to you're taking from the soil. So you need to replenish, you need to give back. And it's whether that's on a field scale and your field is five hectares or your field is like we cultivate an area of two two acres um, very intensely and we produce you know, equivalent to around hundreds, thousands US dollars and thereabouts for a community. How many people do you all feed? We could be feeding 500 people on a, on a lunch, wow. uh, lunch and dinner. So what we produce is never enough for, for that number of people because we're also educational and we have the contemplative practices, the mindfulness practices, as well as a focus. But we produce a lot, yeah, and the conservation aspect of it is that we conserve the soil. You know, there's a saying that the, the human race is uh, only separated from annihilation by six inches, and that's the six inches of soil under our feet. Mm. And once that goes, we go. Yeah. It's as simple as that, and with a growing global population, we need to feed each other and we need to nourish each other. We see how our, unfortunately our neighbours are still engaged in this, what is the mainstream agriculture. Mm -hmm. The soil is anything but conserved, it's getting washed away, blown away, really damaged. Mm. And one, one really significant indicator for us that the, this form of conservation agriculture is working is that at certain times of year we get these flushes of of mushrooms and fungi fruiting on our, our vegetable beds. We can we know that that's just like the apple and the apple tree, so it's it's just the fruit. But underneath the soil is the mycorrhizal network and community. And because we're not tilling and turning over, we just add on top. You know, we add on compost, we add a little bit of maybe composted animal manure from local neighbor. We use wheat straw from, from our neighbors as well and it all feeds the soil. So that feeds the the, the mycorrhiza and the mushrooms are there to, to break down and recycle that and, and feed and release in partnership to the, the plants and the, the root systems. Mm. But they're all there doing their thing underneath. But when we till, we, we're just damaging and damaging. So they're just always in repair mode. They're always in sort of panic mode, if you will, trying to, to come back together. Mm. And, and they don't have the ability to, to hold the soil, the web of life together. And it becomes mm. like any of us when it becomes stressed and, Absolutely. But there's there's hope in this, and it's there's amazing work being done in, in the states actually, mm. an organization called the Land Institute. Uh, I came to, to know of them because the, the clothing company Patagonia has supported them, mm -hmm. and they've there's a beautiful uh, short documentary. It's around 25 minutes, and it's called Unbroken Ground. So when we tell we we break the ground. Mm. And there's a few different stories of of sort of regenerative or conservation-based agriculture food stories and producers that Patagonia had supported. Mm. And one of them is working with the Land Institute. And they they are have for a long time have been doing great research to come up with uh, the possibility of perennial cereal grains. And they are they've selected a few. So all of our, our grains are wheat, say from here in France. That's you know, there's this the French baguette that people buy every day. That was at one stage like a, a wild grass species that some of our ancestors took from the, the prairies in the, the Midwest of America and 
um, yeah, they domesticated it and crossed it and crossed it. So they got bigger grains and the, the more more energy, more fat in the, the grain for, for us to sustain ourselves. That's our story of bread, I guess. Mm. But like we talked about, that's that stressful situation for the earth, the constant tillage, like you said, leaving the earth, that scar undressed, open to to all the potentials of disease and infection can come in, just like us if you have a large wound. Yeah. So you got to care for it, and it's it's tough. But the, the earth is so strong; she oh, yeah. she really she'll, she'll, she'll live around. on. <laughs> yeah, she'll live on. That's for sure. Sometimes I'm talking to people like who have this environmental focus, and I'm like, everything you're saying is like what we do to us, also. Like, if you think about it, what they're doing with tilling, right? Leaving the soil exposed. The image that comes is also like leaving a wound exposed. Like you have a wound in the body. You just leave it just like, all right, here you go. Like, you know, but when we have a wound, we need to cover it and, you know, take care of it and, you know, be kind to it. And and so, yeah. That's just fascinating. It's just so fascinating. And that, that stress, right? That energy of stress, we know how detrimental that is to our own health. So of course it's going to be detrimental to the earth's health. So there's... That's very much a, a big part of the future of agriculture. Mm-hmm. Where we can move away from annual tillage to to even minimal tillage mm-hmm. or, or no tillage at all for certain crops. Mm-hmm. Also the access to the food. So most of our supermarket markets in the the Western world, you know, whether that's meat, dairy, fruit and veg, it's coming from these conventional systems, which are non-organic, non-conservation-based agriculture. And like I've mentioned before, in Europe at least, the system that subsidizes farmers, because farming is it's very hard work, and often it's not economically viable without these subsidies. Mm. I can't talk about what it's like in the US. But it's similar to, to make change... Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I think to to make the shift, you know, and it is growing conservation agriculture to shift it to to that becomes the new norm. The the governments have to get behind it and subsidize the farmers to to go down that road because they won't be able to break out of the existing model mm-hmm. because they won't be able to survive financially themselves yeah. as farmers and look after their own families and their own communities. So there's a lot of work in the sadly in the policy and the on the bigger scale in terms of governments and yeah lobbying to to share with them that this is possible. But this is all scalable. Well, you know, one thing that people do we do on our, our small farm is cover crops, which is what Drawdown um, talks about. So this idea of not having soil bare over the seasons. Cover crops for people who don't know, it's just that it's a, a crop that covers the soil when in between cultivation, between maybe you have a field of wheat and it's harvested, instead of leaving the soil bare, you you can lightly till, or sometimes not even till, now there's machinery where you can sort of directly, this, the seed can get pushed into to the soil. And that sort of germinates before the, the warmth and the heat of the soil goes out of the, the soil at the end of the fall and the autumn. It germinates and forms a beautiful green carpet. And many of the plants that we use come from like the pea and the bean family, which have this amazing ability to to take draw down nitrogen from the atmosphere mm-hmm. and put it into their roots. 
and then that's transferred into the soil to replace what's been taken out. So it's just another way of putting back, like putting compost on your soil. Mm -hmm. So all these things that can be done on a small scale, gardening or a human scale farm, are now happening on a large scale where farmers, before the heavy machinery for the big, you know, the big hectare farms, mm -hmm. was really just designed for tillage and you know, for that sort of non-conservation based agriculture now it's actually happening that the, the machinery is, is being designed and being used for conservation based agriculture so cover crops is one great example of that yeah cover crops i mean it just intuitively makes sense right it's like even the image of soil exposed again it's like this wound exposed like why would you want to expose it you want to like constantly replenish it um i would love let's talk more about this move from like the monoculture to diversity like the mono to diversity because i think that's a big thing also it's like you know if you have a field you're just growing grapes you're just growing wheat what is that doing long term and wouldn't it be more viable even more economical to have a diversity of crops a kind of i would love to hear your your views on that basically even that simple rotation of crops even though it's it's monocultural in its nature it's that in itself is very beneficial because if we grow you know parts of the u.s are quite famous for for maize for corn for used in the food industry, modified corn syrup and other issues that it's used for. It's, you know, it's not, not healthy really for humans. And there isn't that simple rotation. So by rotating in itself a simple way, so you're just not growing the same crop on the same patch of soil year after year, the, the nutrients that we'll pull out of the soil for, for maize, say for, for corn, are specific to corn. You know, uh, if it was sunflower, they may not pull out the same nutrients. So you're you're giving the chance of soil to rest and replenish just by rotating. You're also managing a buildup of pests and diseases in the soil. So if you're the monoculture, you know, Ireland was famous for the the potato famine, where we just subsisted on potatoes. You know, as a as a nation, when the a famine came because we had this monocultural, even though the farms were small, small scale, small areas of land, everybody grew really the same variety of potato. And when an airborne fungus, uh, which we called the blight, farmers still you know, are aware of blight for potatoes and tomatoes, it affects the same things, aubergines, anything in that family. The, the monocultural nature of, of how Ireland at that time was cultivating the majority of its food in potatoes. They, they lost the, nearly their whole year's supply of food um, and the people at that time were very poor and, and we had a famine and millions died, millions emigrated thereafter. So it's, that's like an extreme example of, of monoculture and what can go wrong. Something we try to do here in the, the Happy Farm of Plum Village, like I mentioned at the start, is to care for the existing ecology. So here we're very fortunate we've got beautiful broadleaf native oak forests right up to the edge of our farm on one side. We've got a wetland along the other side. Um, we've got beautiful wildflower meadows. We, we try to cultivate deadwood habitats and as simple as like stacking up uh, deadwood that falls out of the forest or from some of our prunings. You know, today we were pruning raspberries. You know, the, the dead canes that we pruned out 
go on that, and that uh, provides habitat for things like hedgehogs, which eat the slugs. Um, small places for, for resting birds, like we have a little bird called the wren, who mm. loves to, to be in the small holes. And they all are part of the, the web of life, and a lot of our birds will will feed on some of those bugs, like the Colorado potato bug. It gives us a lot of suffering as, as farmers. So to care for the ecology is a big part of uh, of this sort of monoculture, as the opposite way around. If you look at monocultural fields, there could be there could be hundreds of hectares, and there's nothing but corn. There's no diversity of life, and there's no diversity of life. There's no way that that crop can stand up to whether that's an insect plague of insects or whether it's a soil-borne disease, whether it's an airborne fungal infection like happened in Ireland. Mm. So just with diversity comes resilience. And it's it's understandable that it's set up for, for mechanization and it's set up for what people look to as efficiency and scale. Uh, and it's for profit, of course. We all need to literally put bread on the table. So I can see that, but we can do it with using systems that we have and using machinery that we have, adapting it, uh, going towards uh, techniques like like minimum till, no-till, cover crops on, on the same scale and bringing that diversity into our crops. But it, it always goes back to what do the farmers get paid to cultivate? You know, if we pay farmers to be custodians of the land, in Ireland, for example, now we, the government wants to, to pay every farmer to plant around an acre or half an acre of native trees on their land mm. as a way to, to care for, for the land and to, to reforest Ireland. And if the, if the farmers are paid, which they will be through government subsidies, they'll do it. They'll be happy to care for the land. I mean, it's wonderful to see people waking up to this. And Eamon and I always talk about, like, let's make, let's turn, like, you know, climate solutions and all of this into the next, like race to the moon or whatever, like who can sequester the most, car which country can sequester the most carbon? And like, if that's what gets humans motivated, you know, let's, let's motivate us in, in the direction of, of good. So yeah, I just wanted to share that. I, I have had that lived experience being in India, living with farmers and, and seeing yeah the effects of, I mean, there had all those farmer suicides in India, also seeing the effects of what happens when you bring in this more industrial um, paradigm into places that have survived and thrived and fed populations for thousands of years. So I think like you said in the beginning also, we're a lot of this is just returning to old practices that we've already, you know, indigenous peoples have yeah. done. Also with a new awareness, with the scientific awareness also. Because when you have that, you can really, you know, make the most informed decision. It's wild that we like have the solutions, you know, like they're here, they're lit, they're here. They're not like in some abstract space. They're here. We have so many amazing minds. And so, yeah, I'm curious, what, what do you see as the shift that needs to take place or that is taking place that will really give this movement the momentum it needs. What I want is it for it to be scalable and for it to be when I go into a supermarket, whether that's in France or Australia or US, that the majority of the food that's under that roof or in that mall is cultivated in a way that's good for the earth, that's good for the people who dwell on the earth. 
it was good for the rest of the ecology that shares the earth. And it's not just about profit. It's not a, like a form of extractive agriculture where we do it just for profit and that profit's just, yeah, it's not staying on the farms. It's not staying with the families on the farms or the local communities. It's going off to the big multinational supermarkets, wherever they are. Um, so it's, it has to be scalable. And it's great, you know, when I discovered this, the farm here, we've been going around 10 years and I've been managing the project for the last five. I was like something just went crazy inside me that the prospect of this confluence of um, the, the mindfulness practice and the, the, the growing of food and then the sort of connection with the natural world because our little farm is like I shared in the middle of this beautiful wooded, wooded valley with wetland and wonderful meadows in the summer so it's just really beautiful so those elements and community for me that's a big part of life so to connect with the natural world for me is to connect to the like the web of life, which is so important in the, in the cons- conservation agriculture. Where it's not just about profit, it's not just about monoculture. It's to see all the threads of life that you know, caring for the soil, caring for the ecology on the farm, uh, and caring for each other in terms of colleagues and workers. Uh, and also, yeah, it's not utopian. It's it's not like I said, it's in paradise. We have the challenges so to to bring our mindfulness to the challenges as well. Mm. Oh well, this has been so beautiful. <laughs> I feel like I could keep talking to you for hours, but <laughs> honor honor our time. Um, we like to close with one question, and that is, if you had to leave us with one message in a few words, sentences, what would you like the world to hear about climate solutions? For me, it's just about reconnecting with the world and knowing that the blood of my veins is full of iron that's also in the soil, it's in the clay that we're cultivating, as is the water, and the, all the elements, the calcium in my bones is also, this, is, this area is full of limestone. This house is built from limestone. It's the same element that's in my bones, it's in my nails, so it's in my teeth. Mm. So no separation, this idea of, like, we take that hand, we find it, probably just talks about interbeing, and we can see, like, we can see the farmer and the food when we eat, but we can also see the soil, and we can see the seed, and we can see the, the land ancestors. So it's an opportunity for contemplation and livelihood. And, and being part of a positive solution and sharing that in a, with a very low-key form of education to inspire people to go back out, investigate their food choices, to think about growing some of their own food, uh, to support yeah, local farmers, to think about soil and ecology, and to think about climate as a big part of it as well. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. For more information, visit www.fromoiltosoil.org. From Oil to Soil, The Shift is a crowdfunded initiative made possible by donations from individuals. The work we do is entirely voluntary. It is an offering of the heart for the earth. The following tracks were used as background music in this episode. Cello Duet No. 1 by Chief Bolima, 
and two tracks by Dream Heaven. Audio production by Eamon Durkin. We hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends and family.